Good morning. You are listening to KPOO San Francisco 89.5 and on the World Wide Web at KPOO.com. This is Prison Focus Radio. Slavery is back. In fact, it was never abolished. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolished slavery, except in prison. At the current rate of incarceration, by the year 2010, the majority of all African-American men between 18 and 40 will be in prison. The state as their captor. It's going to take people who are willing to fight, not people who want to negotiate with the enemy. Deal with 
All right, good morning, beautiful people. You are listening to KPOO San Francisco 89.5, and this is Prison Focus Radio. I am your host, Nube Brown. Uh, we are going to get started. Actually, the, pretty much the whole show is going to be dedicated to um, a brother that I met a few months ago, Jay DeAndre. He was, I, I was able to attend... Um, to support my beautiful f- friend and queen sister, Queen McKinney, um, uh, the graduating class of the Institute of Impacted Leaders that comes out of Initiate Justice. And my being able to support and love this beautiful sister um, had me introduced to Jay DeAndre and his beautiful family. This brother has a story. Um, and I am very uh, pleased and honored to be able to share him with you. And I'm sure this is not going to be our only conversation. Uh, he has a lot to say. And uh, again, part of the fight, part of this movement, um, the prisoner human rights movement to, um, it, well, for, for me, it's abolishing prisons. I am definitely looking for um, abolishing this unjust system um, of the colonizer, capitalist, imperialist, white uh, coward structure uh, that we call America Inc. So here is my conversation, which will be one of many with Jay DeAndre. Good morning, Jay. Hello, good morning. How are you doing? Feeling all right. Okay, so for the listeners who, of course, have not yet had a chance to meet you, but will this morning, why don't you uh, introduce yourself? Yeah, just say who you are, um, and and then we'll get into some of the other uh, goodies as we move along. Okay, great, yeah. So, uh, you know, first off, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to the uh, listeners. But my name is uh, Jay DeAndre. Uh, it's a, I'm a uh, formerly incarcerated individual. I'm an abolitionist and an organizer with Initiate Justice. And I'm fighting alongside a lot of other stakeholders to end mass incarceration throughout the nation and around the world. All right, beautiful. Um, and how, how long have you, uh, how long have you been out? When did you get home? Okay, uh, so I've been out of prison for three years. I was released in uh, April of 2018. All right, Jay and I ran into a little bit of sound technical difficulties, but I asked him about his family that I met um, while I was there meeting him for the first time, and here is his answer. Yeah, so I was blessed enough that uh, when I got out, I uh, shortly after I was released, I met my wife. Uh, we've been together for... Just under three years, we've had two children, a two-year-old daughter and a four-month-old son. So that's been a blessing to be able to find love and uh, you know, create a new family. Yes, yeah, it was beautiful. It was so wonderful to see all of you there. Yeah, the, the love was palpable. Uh, lots of smiles all around. Uh, it, sound, it, it looked like uh, pride was definitely on uh, both sides, you getting your your uh, you uh, graduating 
from this yes. program. And then, uh, yes, you feeling so proud of your beautiful family. That was so, uh, so apparent. All right. Um, yeah. And I, and I, and the only reason I asked that Jay too, and thank you for sharing that because again, it, we're, we just really want to make sure that we are, you know, that, that we aren't allowing ourselves to be forced into the narrative that CDC small R has of the people, um, that are inside and when they come home, because, uh, you know, the, the, again, the, the, the narrative that they have about, about, um, prisoners. Absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah. just, it's, uh, it's cruel and yeah, unusual absolutely. punishment. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We have to, uh, you know, take back and control the narrative because there's a lot of spin that's being put out there by, uh, certain groups, uh, conservatives and other groups of like, uh, you know, white supremacists, supporters and sympathizers who will make us all out to be lawless individuals who don't care about society. That's the total and complete opposite. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I don't mind sharing. And uh, it's a blessing. It's a blessing to be to be uh, raising, you know, young abolitionists. And my wife's actually in the program that I graduated from, so I got her to sign up. So she's a part of it now as well. Oh my god, <laughs> that is fantastic! Oh, beautiful. I'm that. Wow. Yeah. An abolitionist family. Well, good for her. That's fantastic. So she's in the program now. Why don't you, okay, perfect segue. Let's talk about that program. Um, yeah. Talk about how, what it was for you, uh, the graduating. And now again, like, uh, you've now, um, you know, what, what you went through obviously was inspirational enough for your, uh, for your wife to get involved. And sorry. And what is your wife's name? My wife's name is Vanessa. Vanessa. All right. Yeah. So please tell us about this program that you went through. And yeah, no problem. So uh, I was fortunate enough to be a pupil and graduate, become a graduate of the Institute of Impacted Leaders, which was founded and started by the director of my organization, Initiate Justice, Tiana Vargas. And what the Institute of Impacted Leaders is, is a uh, it's a twelve week organizing training program. So basically, the program teaches everyone about the history of mass incarceration, teaches us about Jim Crow South, it teaches us about policy, how to influence policy, how to be a part of the policy process, how to change policy, and how to effectively be an advocate for loved ones and be a part of the uh, abolitionist process to uh, abolish a lot of these, these uh, institutions of racism that we have uh, codified here throughout the United States. So it's, it's definitely a blessing, you know, because uh, as a child growing up in Compton, California, you know, I was uh, a witness to, to the Bataram, to a lot of the injustices, to the war on drugs, which is really the war on black people mm -hmm. and people of color and all the different injustices around. So to see it all uh, be uh, be brought to light, be codified, be put into, you know, a uh, an intellectual perspective. You know, I uh, I felt you know justified in in all of my beliefs that I've had throughout life and what I've come to know since then in college and everything else. So, but yeah, so the program trains and teaches organizers on uh, you know how to organize, how to effectively advocate, and how to abolish systems within the law 
And uh, after we complete our program, we were, you know, we were blessed enough to be able to have a, a graduation at this elegant vineyard, you know, uh, which, you know, being formerly incarcerated, we aren't really exposed to a lot of the, uh, the best things in life, but the organization, you know, bends over backwards to ensure that we see uh, these types of things because it's like, you know, hey, if you choose it, if you desire, you can have that too, even though, you know, it's material stuff, it doesn't mean anything, it just shows you that there is no limit to what we could do as people of color and as formerly incarcerated, our systems impact the people. That's beautiful. So, okay. How, um, first, just, just quickly, how long were you inside? Yeah, so I served uh, uh, a little over 12 years. Okay. Uh, straight time, no uh, in and out, just 12 years of incarceration. Mm -hmm. And I've been, uh, I've been a part of incarceration in the free world for another three. So it's like close to about 15 and a half uh, on this term, even though a lot of people wouldn't consider, you know, parole incarceration. It you know, absolutely is. I wanted to just talk a little bit about your wife being involved, Vanessa, because, uh, or your partner. Um, yeah. um, I want to, because that's one of the things I love about Initiate Justice and also this movement and um, this the the aspect of how important it is to understand the impact this has on family members and how yes. can you talk a little bit about about that? Yeah, absolutely. So what Initiate Justice has done and the blueprint that uh, that we've set up, it, you know, it, it's amazing and I think it's kind of one of a kind because what Tayana and Richie started were was organizing from an inside-out perspective. Mm -hmm. A lot of organizations, they aren't fortunate enough to be able to have connections behind the walls. And some, they not they don't have connections outside the walls, so it's kind of like a split between. Or you may have just a few connections to where you can't really be effective. But fortunately for us, we were able to develop an inside-out organizing tactic in which we harness the power of people who are directly impacted by mass incarceration, meaning people who are uh, incarcerated persons, as well as the power of their loved ones. And so what we do at Initiate Justice is we don't transform anyone. We don't remove anyone from their story. We don't take anyone away from their individuality. But what we do is we bring individuals in, nurture them, and help them bring out what's already in them. Help them realize the power, the political power that they already have. And it's amazing because, uh, so by harnessing the power of the loved ones, you're able to, to be able to, to express how incarceration hurts families, how it hurts children, how it hurts society, how it hurts communities, how people are incarcerated and just warehoused without being given effective opportunities at rehabilitation. And then when they're paroled, they're just thrown on the street or in, in a bus station with $200 in their pocket. And then not even the full $200 because they have to pay for their own bus ticket to wherever they actually live at in their uh, house miles away from home and you're just thrown on the street so by harnessing the power of the uh, loved ones and stakeholders as well as those who are currently incarcerated we're able to effectively unite those powers and make it into one voice for advocating to end that form of oppression right and the the other we talked a little bit about uh, about the narrative and how these oppressors um, 
control the narrative about who you are. And that has been extended also to the family. So it's de also, would you agree that it's destigmatizing um, family members and how also just the general public, right, in terms of family members, yes. destigmatizing them as well. It's like somehow they're associated, you know, family is associated or don't want to be associated with people who are in prison um, and or out who are still on, in, it sounds like in your case, parole. Would you like Yes. To yes, absolutely. Yeah, so um, the stigma that they associate with people who are currently incarcerated, formerly incarcerated in the family, is a weaponized tool that the patriarchal systems of, of oppression and white supremacy use to hold us down. And so it's, like you mentioned, it's a real thing. And what happens is you have uh, wives of people, of incarcerated persons who are looked down upon or who are not allowed to, you know, work certain jobs or, or who are faced with certain stigmas when they mention that they might be trying to visit a loved one or are uh, going into a, a carceral environment to be able to see someone that they care about. And so they, they do that on purpose because by them if affecting stigma, what it does is it reduces the person's likelihood to, to vote. It reduces the person's likelihood to advocate for their loved ones because they're afraid or ashamed. It reduces the incarcerated person's effectiveness once they're released because you're afraid to apply for certain jobs. You're afraid of being rejected. You know that you could be legally discriminated against. And so that stigma and I still go through it myself daily. I have to fight and struggle and say, no, I deserve this. I have to tell myself, no, I've worked hard enough for this. I have to tell myself, you know, hey, I don't, I don't care. And that stigma is a real thing. And so, uh, yeah, one the good thing about Initiate Justice is uh, being the type of organization that we are, we're a, a whole organization. So we don't just uh, bring people in, take advantage of them for them stories, and then throw them back out to the wolves. It's an actual network of, of friends and family, loved ones, stakeholders, people who are standing in the gap for anyone who's marginalized around the world. We live by the narrative and the model that if it hurts one of us, if it affects one of us, it affects all of us. And so with Initiate Justice, we hold uh, healing circles. We have, uh, you know, certain outings that we do. We have get togethers. Um, so basically it becomes a system of just people, people, people who are all a part of one society or who are affected or who are community members or people who just care. Some of our people are mothers of incarcerated persons. Some of them are formerly incarcerated. Some of them are just politicians who want to, who see the problem and who want to help. Some are, uh, are, you know, uh, lawyers, doctors, it's just a lot of different stakeholders who, who want to see change in the system because we all realize that the system is not effective and it's not broken. It's operating the way they designed it. So we have to get rid of it. Mm. Absolutely. Um, I and I'm really glad that we, you know, talked a little bit about that because I'm going to just spur off just a little bit. Um, and I don't know because I don't know if I mentioned this to you when I had met you. Just so you know, I'm also an abolitionist. The San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper is also an unapologetically black liberation journalism hey. around about abolition. <laughs> so hey. we are. Yeah. Just so you know. And one of the. Um, and I also want to give a shout out to California Prison Focus. They are also a human rights abolitionist uh, or, okay. uh, organization as well. Um, and um, the, the reason I'm bringing this up is because 
our two organizations, our two media outlets, focused a lot on, or we were kind of the, the bullhorn for the, uh, the California hunger strikers. Those a group of men that came together across racial lines um, and organized and activated and organized this, the historic California hunger strikes Three altogether yes. that culminated in the 30,000 people participating, like yes. and some a core group of them deciding that they were going to hunger strike to their death. They went 59 days. They were going to die. Yes. I remember I was, uh, I was actually incarcerated during the, during the couple of them I was in. The state prison at that time. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. Would you like to expound upon that about your experience, what you were, anything, what you were experiencing physically, mentally, spiritually? Yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, being incarcerated at that time with hunger strikes were going on, um, you know, it, it was uh, liberating to see, you know, the brothers uh, be able to put aside the nonsense. And to you know, step to the plate and say, "Hey, we have a common cause. We have a uh, common enemy. We have a common threat. And this is what we want to see done. Here's our list of our demands, and we're going to stand on this until you guys uh, at least meet us halfway or come to the bargaining table. And for them to have, uh, you know, uh, a, a sort of a victory in the end is, is it feels good. But at the same time, um, you know, as a person who 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 was in their situation, I understand, you know, all the hurdles and strife that they went through in order to be able to to complete that that plan because CDC, little R, as you mentioned, they're a, a very oppressive organization. And uh, specifically, when people are involved in hunger strikes and other forms of protest, uh, it's not like it is on the streets in America where it's just like, okay, whatever you do, you will go out of the way. No, it's a thing. And when it's a thing, uh, the uh, the officers are abusive to people who are participating. Um, they don't get you medical attention. Uh, they write you up with a with a rule infractions or you know serious write ups for uh, for participating in such progress, such uh, protests, or you know being a part of a certain movement. Um, it's just a lot of different things that that happens and takes place and. Uh, that a person like that has committed themselves to. So, you know, it's definitely uh, liberating and, and encouraging to see those brothers uh, put aside, uh, well, their differences to be able to, to affect that change. And I like it because it reminds me of, of uh, things that you hear about the California prison system from back in like the, the 60s and, and, and uh, 70s before the, Correctional officers played the racial sides against each other and had the uh, violence that takes place now between the races. So I hope we can see a lot more of that going forward. But it's 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 it's, uh, it's also harmful to see that that uh, people had to go through such hurt and such pain to be able to to find a remedy, you know, to find a remedy. Man, that just that just goes to show you, you know, the type of oppressive nature and and the ideology that these powers that be, you know, live by. So, so yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of a double-edged sword, you know, just. Yeah. And, and it's interesting too, because 
you know, we, um, you know, we have been kind of forced into this language using the oppressor's language, having to, you know, kind of work around and find our own tools because they weaponize everything. And um, thinking about, you know, like the powers of be, and I can't think of any more cowardly people that their only response is to just continue to do more damage, retaliate even further, use more and more violence to the point of actually, you know, murdering people, because we know that that takes place within our prisons uh, right here in absolutely. California. And um, just yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I've, I've seen it, uh, you know, during, during my... Uh, my 12 some odd years of incarceration in the California state prison system. You know, I've seen multiple staff assaults on inmates. I've seen, uh, I've seen officers set inmates up to be murdered and the murder murders follow through with. I've seen officers set inmates up to be assaulted. I've seen officers set inmates up to be uh, sexually assaulted. I've seen, you know, tons of different things. So there, there isn't any, there isn't anything anybody could tell me as far as, you know, the, couple bad apples and all this stuff. It, it doesn't exist. It's not true. It's not what's actually happening on the ground. And uh, yeah, so yeah, that's what they do. And there's been, you know, multiple federal probes. And the thing about it is once they once the feds go in there and they find what they already know, which is that the CDC officers are corrupt, they don't do anything except for maybe indict one or two and they get off. And then they just tell the, the CDC order to, uh, to reform or to reorganize and they, you know, they don't, they don't actually change anything. So yeah. Hence yeah. abolition. <laughs> yeah. Abolition. Yeah. Abolition is the way. Abolition is the word. Um, and, um, were you able to see, uh, I mean, yeah, it, it, just from your perspective, were you able to see how the agreement and hostilities, uh, worked behind the walls? I'm sorry. See, see the, what? The, the agreement to end hostilities, did, did you know anything about that? Because CDCR, the CDC small r, the guards um, deliberately uh, said, you know, th d would not participate or cooperate with putting out the, uh, this happened in 2012, they put out uh, uh, the, those guys of the Pelican Bay Short uh, Corridor uh, Collective uh, created the agreement to end hostilities, and it basically said, we are all going to come together. It's like, you know, the George Jackson, settle your quarrels, and let's come mm -hmm. together and know who our oppressor is so that we can, um, you know, get get th the things that we need that benefits prisoners and our families and the people that are, yes. that are fighting for us. And this document, which was supposed to be asked for it to be presented at all the prisons so that as a, you know, a call to come together and stop the violence, right? Like settle yeah. what you needed, not, you know, creating, allowing these race riots, basically, right? Yeah. Not allowing CDC small arm, these gang guards um, or guard gangs to uh, continually use us against each other. And the CDC small R refused to do it. And they well, had to find their own uh, way of getting it out. Well, you know what, New Bay, uh... I'll tell you this. I don't really like to be stumped in uh, interviews, uh -huh. but I've never heard of that uh, of that an actual you know that that letter that written mm -hmm. declaration or call to action, mm -hmm. and it just goes to show you how oppressive CDCR. Exactly. If you have the the gentleman up in Pelican Bay, which everybody knows for the most part, they pretty much control a lot a lot of the uh, a lot of the things that takes place within the different fractions. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of a lot of the leaders from some of the fractions up there. You know, in Pelican Bay, they have them under restrictive housing. 
So if these gentlemen were to issue a decree or a call to action to tell others to, hey, put all this nonsense behind us, let's stop this, let's, and CDCR doesn't put it out, it just goes to show you how CDCR benefits monetarily and how they they want to keep and continue to perpetuate the violence because they're the ones that started the violence in the CDCR prisons by playing sides against each other. And they make money off of perpetuating it. Absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah. I've never, uh, I've heard that, uh, that document, but I'm gonna go look it up now. I'm gonna go ask around and do my research now. That's it, beautiful. It, it doesn't surprise me. It mm -hmm. doesn't surprise me because, um, they keep those, uh, individuals walled off for a reason. And, you know, uh, they always seem to let the bad stuff come out, but they never, they don't want to let the, the good stuff trickle down. So Absolutely. that's amazing. Right there. Yeah, beautiful. You will love it. Um, I can't wait until, and, and um, it doesn't surprise me either. And and I I actually, there's a part of me, I don't, I, I can't say I'm like kind of glad that you don't know, but it, it again, it highlights. That's yeah. what is so important here uh, that I want people to understand. So, okay, great. And um, we always a chance to learn. That's the other thing, uh, you know, yeah. here, like we don't, we don't have these conversations, Jay, so that if for entertainment value, this is mm -hmm. so that we can be uh, more knowledgeable about the movement that we in, we're in so that we can be, um, you know, deeply inspired to, to get involved from a, a human rights aspect. This is, we're talking about humanity Absolutely. here. So yes. um, the, just, we we'll never know everything. The oppressor is doing everything it can to make sure that we don't know our history, that we don't know um, about, um, again, prisoners being so inspired, so organized, so intelligent, um, and really the incredible work that they have done. So yeah, I'm excited that you're gonna read the Agreement 10 Hostilities as well. And I, yes, and, absolutely. And where this kind of, yeah, yeah, beautiful. Um, and and it, it, it will be right in line with what you're, the work that you're doing. So um, I wanted to go back to another thing when we talked about, uh, because it, it, in relation to that group of men and what they were able to accomplish. So you talked about, um, mind you, these are men that they did these hunger strikes because they had already been subjected to the torture of decades of solitary confinement. And we're talking solitary confinement up in Pelican Bay State Prison, maximum security prison, um, security housing units built specifically to break yes. these men. They had already been subjected, many of them, at the minimum was 10 years. But yes. most of them, 20 and 30 and more plus years of solitary confinement, sensory deprivation. So when we think yes. about, uh, that's, of course, genocidal. When we talk about yes. how that affects families, uh, they many of them, of course, lost just all of their family. Most of them lost their parents while they were inside. That's a very big issue. But... We now have those men are now, and I will say that women also were thrown in, in solitary confinement uh, for uh, um, multiple years as well. But when I say men, it's because they are the ones that actually uh, organized the, um, 
uh, first of all, created the agreement to end hostilities, but also organized the hunger strikes. But yes. just recently, one of those men came home. He is yes. 74 years old. He's finally out. He has spent, again, he is one of those hunger strikers. He was part of the, the, the decades of being tortured by solitary confinement. He is on, he came out on parole. And again, that thing you talked about, the $200, they gave him $200 after everything he went through. Mm-hmm. He is on parole. Um, and they gave him $200 to like, here, here you go. Yeah. Get your life together now that you're out. Yep. So, um, yeah. Yes, that's, that, 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 uh, what you just mentioned right there mm-hmm. is, it's not an alarm, it's not an anomaly. Right. That's the standard. And so we're, uh, like we're fighting right now to, uh, we have legislation passed right now, uh, AB 292, which is, uh, access to programming. And what that would do is allow individuals who are currently enrolled in uh, education and, and vocational programs and uh, college programs to be able to continue their their programming and earn their credits toward release when they would be transferred for doing good. Because there's a lot of situations where people are doing good, who's out of trouble, who's not getting to anything. And they're transferred and have to start their, their little rehabilitation that they were able to gain or fight for and get and have to start it all over. So it just, uh, with CDCR, they, they have, like they're invested in keeping people down, keeping people oppressed. They benefit from it monetarily. And in order to keep that, that type of uh, prejudicial system in place, they have to keep people in a constant state of need and a constant state of hurt, a constant state of trauma. They don't want to rehabilitate individuals. They don't want to transform people and have them become better, become good neighbors. They want to set you out there and hope and pray that you fail. That way you come right back in on the same bus that you went out of with a new number, doing a new date, a new set of time. And it just goes to show you in the example that you brought up, who in their right mind would think that you could take a person, isolate them for decades, not give them any form of real access to rehabilitation, not give them a way to take care of themselves or to provide no job skills, little education, if any, or access to it. You cut off their family ties and you keep them in there so long that most of their family members die and pass away, anybody who they knew. And then you kick them out into society with $200 in their pocket. Like that's just contrary to common sense. That's contrary to anything that makes sense to do that and expect someone to be successful and survive. And so that's why the, the whole system of, of CDCR, it's not broken. It's working the way that they designed it. And that's what we're trying to get uh, people with general knowledge to be able to understand so they can think deeply and think more critically and see that the system is not broken. No matter how much money you throw at it, the CDCR will tell you, oh, you know what, you're right in this area. The numbers show it. Hey, give us another $4 billion and then you know, we can make some reforms and make get better at that. But no, no matter how much money you give them, no matter how much money you throw in this hole, it's going to continue to be a hole. And it's going to continue to be a hole that grows deeper and deeper and deeper and continue to grow. It's like pouring water down, water down a muddy hole. It's going to continue to grow and get bigger. 
And that's why we have to abolish it because these people are benefiting financially. And as long as they're benefiting financially, they have no, no, uh, they have no need or will power to ever, to ever change what takes place in that system. Absolutely. And, um, I just call it a new iteration of, of slavery. It's modern day slavery. The 13th amendment says so. I, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, 80, it's an $80 billion industry. I think it's something like 13 or $15 billion just here in California. Yeah, I think last year, uh, if I'm not mistaken, last year California, I think, spent uh, close to $15 billion on law enforcement in yeah. California alone. So, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, definitely, that's definitely what it is. It's the, it's the new Jim Crow, it's the new form of slavery. Um, during my incarceration, I worked probably uh, 20 different job assignments. Out of those job assignments, I was maybe compensated for three or four. And of the jobs I was compensated for, the most compensation I ever received was, I think, like 24 cents an hour. And the lowest, which is the, the average, that, and that was like the like one of the best jobs as, as a welder in prison, as a fabricator. <laughs> and Jesus. some wow. of the, the lowest jobs would like would have been like uh, one or two cents an hour. And so it's, that's exactly what it is. It's, it's, it's slavery. And it's not really slavery, it's a problem. And for anyone who says it's not a problem, I challenge you. Let's pass legislation to remove all our private money, all the private profiteering from the current prison system. And I guarantee you, you'll see how many people will be screaming to change the system after that. But right now, as long as people are benefiting monetarily, they're pumping those false narratives like we were speaking about early, pumping those false narratives online, pumping those false narratives in social media, pumping those false narratives in the media, and they're benefiting from it, then it's fine. But the moment that you that you stop them from making money from it, then they'll be screaming to, to change things and how is the money paid, people aren't getting better. They'll do our job for us. But until then, we have to continue to fight and, and uh, you know, fight every struggle backwards with our fists in the air. Absolutely. And we're with you. We are with you all the way. <laughs> we are. We got to stay in this fight and we got to yes. and we have to stay focused on really what is taking place. These are this is a system that is is addicted to slave and cheap labor. Um, and making money, making profits off of the backs of uh, certain groups of people. Yes. And black and brown and poor people. Yes. And, uh, yeah, and, and I think we do need to take um, as many moments as we can to stop and say, is that what I want to be a part of? Yes. So. Yes. <laughs> yes, it's the outline. It's been the outline of America since the beginning of the time, they need someone to work in their workforces to, to, uh, to, 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 to make their bars of soap, to make the, the rolls of toilet paper, to make the American flags. When you pick up that American flag from the store and it says made in the USA, yeah, right. <laughs> what do you think it's made of? It's not mm. made out of factory. It's made in the prison. It's made in the prison. You get your, your, your California driver's license. It's made in the prison. You get your license plate. It's made in the prison. Your registration. It's made in the prison. You know, all these things, there's so many different things that you wouldn't even know about, you wouldn't even understand. It's made in a prison system. And at the end of the day, it's some wealthy uh, person with less pigment who's benefiting from it that sees himself as different than us, so it's okay. Absolutely. 
And we do need to add, although it's said here quite often, but I think clearly not often enough to understand, also another component of this is as the enslaved people became the master builders, the master farmers, the master of everything, they were only able to use those skills or be recognized for those skills when they were giving it for free. And just yes. as in here, you talked about you being yeah, having the higher paid job at 25 cents an hour being a welder. Are you able to uh, do that work now that you're out if you wanted to? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's actually the way I've been taking care of my family. I still I, I, uh, I work in that, that field still full time right now as it stands today. And um, as a fabricator, I, I make, you know, obviously a lot more than 25 cents an hour. But yeah, so like when you're giving that, when you're giving that uh, skill away for free, that labor away for free, then, you know, you recognize for it and it's all good. But, you know, you come to society and, you, you know, you start to grind it out like everybody else. And it's, it's just, uh, you know, it's hard at times, you know, uh, making a little more than, than maybe the, another person, but a little bit less than a lot of people. So, yeah, it's a... Uh, I've, I've, I've definitely uh, took it upon myself to win for my incarceration, and um, I, I had to fight. I, had to, I don't want people to think that, you know, uh, that the standard is when you go to prison that you actually have access to all these rehabilitative programs and and that you uh, you can definitely transform and change and, and remove yourself from your circumstance because that's not the way it is. Like. Uh, when I was incarcerated, I earned three degrees, but I had a fight to get those degrees. I had a fight hard to the nail. And I was doing things that CDC Little R even considers illegal to be able to, to, to participate in schooling. I was wow. borrowing books from other incarcerated persons. I was buying books on the tier because CDCR doesn't provide them. You know, I was uh, uh, winning uh, textbooks off the poker table but I was committed to doing whatever I had to do in order to to uh, to be able to, to finish my education. I had a fight and I had a you know file a grievance, an administrative grievance six oh two, to be able to even to even get in the welding program, you know, in prison. You know, so it's just it's constant struggles and it's constant barriers to success for the incarcerated population. And I think that the average citizen believes that it's 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 the it's the reverse. You know, they, they look at a lot of the memes and a lot of the, the stupid stuff that gets posted online. They think that, hey, you know, anybody who goes to prison is absolutely guilty and that uh, they just don't want to conform to society and they don't want to be a part of the success that their neighbors have. And that's, just, that's not true. You know, we see from looking at the numbers that, that that's absolutely false. And we want to transform the system to where when someone makes a mistake or they have a shortcoming, that there's a system of checks and balances and it's community-based uh you know discipline our our, our our correction and that community-based system will return people who are better instead of people who are more harmful people who, who experience more trauma and who are more entrenched in, in what they're going through in their daily life to where they can't even function you know just think of the trauma that the people have gone through who are in the shoe who are in the hole who are in all this restrictive restrictive housing, and then to return back to society with just two hundred dollars in their pocket and no resources. Yeah, uh, we yeah I, I we can't 
people think they can imagine what's what's taking place with that, but they really they really can't. Um, and I appreciate um, I also appreciate you using the word transform uh, because uh, you know clearly you are an abolitionist because we don't yes. believe in reform because there's nothing oh, yeah. to reform. And I'm yeah, also very, reform. yeah, no, and I'm also very grateful um, um, that you are able to use that skill, uh, the welding skill. And like you said, although you had to like kind of, you know, fight tooth and nail to, to, to get it. Um, uh, because, uh, and, um, and kind of where I was going with that, and I'm glad it's not your experience, but many of these, uh, many people like thinking about the firefighters, um, mm -hmm. you know, when you need some kind of certificate or license, um, that's often you are denied that you're able to do it when you're inside and yes. um, upholding the system. But when you want to actually benefit from it, when you get out here, you're denied that because you need some kind of so you're denied being able to apply for or work yes. towards a certificate or a license. And because uh, you're background. Yeah. So for yes. that case, we've seen we've seen a system where where uh, incarcerated persons are herded off to these firefighting camps. They're uh, and they're, uh, you know, gifted our 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 bribe with the uh, with the ability to make about a dollar a day, mm -hmm. and earn more time off of their sentence, and they're sent to these firefighting camps. And historically, they would be sent to these firefighting camps, trained to be hot shotters. They would fight wildfires, put their lives on the line. And then historically, when they would get out, they would go, they would, you know, because they would tell them like, "Hey, you could be a firefighter when you get out," and all this stuff. And then they would actually get out, they would go and apply to new firefighters or apply for, you know, firefighter training. And they would be denied because of their their quote unquote criminal history or their background. And uh, you know, it's disheartening to see that, see people use like that, like you were talking about, like you're leading to, to have their, you know, be used for certain labor as long as it's benefiting, you know, certain people, it's all good. But then you go to do it privately to benefit yourself or to 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 re enter society and to become a productive and contribute a member of society to have uh to be denied you know that that uh that opportunity to contribute in that way and the skill that you learn that you've been effective have, that you have a proven track record in you know it's disheartening and it basically just shows the the modern day slave aspect but i know just recently um due to some work of uh some abolitionists and other uh community-based organizations i know there was a uh there was a bill that was passed because that's I'm in now I'm in policy, so you know I'm a you know I'm a, a part of you know the transformational process. Uh, but there was a bill that was passed. Um, I can't think of the name of it right now offhand, but there was a bill that that was passed where, uh, specifically individuals who are being released from fire camps, or who have who have worked as a firefighter while incarcerated, um, that they can once they're released. They can stay out for a period of time without trouble. I think it's like about a year and a half or two years. Then they'll go to court and automatically have their record expunged, and they'll be able to firefight on the streets. So that that's a that's a step in the right direction, but it's not it's not it's not a uh, it's not a direct it's not a one for all. It should be if a person's incarcerated and they're firefighting for a certain period of time, and they may get out and they want to continue to be a firefighter. It should just be like a lateral lateral transfer into a position in the free world, you know, as long as, you know, you continue to to do good and, and work in that environment. But, you know, like you alluded to, just as long as it's benefiting a certain class of people, then they're okay with it. But when it's not benefiting them anymore, it's a problem. Or you're a threat. So. 
Absolutely. Well, I am. I will definitely look up that uh, that bill that was passed. And thank you so much because I know that's so much of what your work is about. And um, it's it's so. I would I would love for us to speak some more, um, but we are going to have to end it there, Jay. Um, I if you want people to get in touch with you, if you're interested in that. Um, if you want to, uh, yeah, to just follow you with the work that you're doing, um, we will definitely have you back. Please let folks know how they can get in touch with you. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, I appreciate anybody who, you know, uh, tap in with me, give me some feedback, encouragement, or, you know, who just want to follow because we're always, uh, having, um, calls to action and also always have information for people who are formerly incarcerated our systems impacted stakeholders, our family members of people who are currently incarcerated. So if you want to, you know, get in, get involved or be a part and get some information, you can always tap in with me on Instagram. And my Instagram is at I am the letter J and then the word DeAndre, D-E-A-N-D-R-E. I am J DeAndre. And uh yeah, tap in with me or if you don't have that, you could uh you could uh email me at uh J J A Y the or the D A abolitionist J the abolitionist and um, I'm always open and willing to have a conversation if you want to know about abolition or policy I'm always willing to help people who are currently incarcerated formerly incarcerated the best I can and uh, initiate justice at initiate justice at initiate justice and we're always having stuff up there for people who are currently incarcerated formerly incarcerated, calls to action, things you should know. So I, I suggest that you give us a follow because, um, you know, we are you and we're fighting for us. So, yeah, thank you. All right. Thank you so much, Jay. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. And, of course, we will have you back because the, the work is ongoing. We want to know what the updates are. I'm very excited that we were able to, uh, you know, end on – uh, the you know with the with the passing of that bill that's gonna going to allow um, you know the the firefighters uh, the imprisoned firefighters to actually put that work to use for their benefit and their family's benefit and their community's benefit that's beautiful um, thank you again for all the great work that you're doing and um, we'll talk again soon yeah for sure thank you I appreciate you having me and uh, I look forward to uh, you know some enlightening conversation again. Thank you for your work and, you know, let's fight the power, power to the people. Beautiful. Thank you so much. All right. We'll talk again soon. And um, okay. yeah, you know, all power to the people. All right. Now, an amazing letter I found from Abdul Olubala Shakur from March 13th, 2009, The Haiti Connection, an open letter to black people everywhere. My beloved people, my name is Abdul Olubala Shakur and I am a new African freedom fighter. Though I am only 47 years old, I have been active in the service of our people since the early 1970s. I grew up in the struggle. The struggle is my life. It's all I know. I came to prison at the age of 18 for allegedly participating in an armed attack on two white sailors in retaliation for a violent sexual assault on a young sister from the community. As a realist, I understand I may never step foot beyond this concrete hell again, and he hasn't, but I refuse to allow this concrete hell to define who I am or restrain my revolutionary spirit. Though I have spent the last or the past 25 and a half years in solitary confinement, an attempt by my keepers no doubt designed to destroy my spirit, my spirit is free, for I have transcended the concrete hell which contains my physical being. 
One of the most pervasive misconceptions pertaining to our imprisoned community is that we lack a sense of humanity or the capacity to empathize, or that we are selfish and always seeking to take advantage of others. This is one of the many reasons why society at large tends to allow the prison industrial slave complex to treat us with brutality as if we are deserving of such inhumane treatment. I, as a new African political prisoner of war, know this is not an accurate description of who we are, especially as it relates to new African political prisoners of war, political prisoners, and politically conscious prisoners and activists. Our good deeds and activist work is often overshadowed by government-sponsored anti-prisoner propaganda. I believe it is time for us as a collective to display our sense of humanity and come together to save our communities, to exhibit a greater expression of our humanity. Let's reach out our hands to help our people in Haiti, to rebuild our international symbol of resistance to global white supremacy and slavery. Approximately three months ago, I received a letter from a young sister inquiring about why I show so much concern for the people of Haiti, especially being that I am not Haitian. I told her, I am a new African, and as a new African, I represent the totality of all that is African and African descended, so I embody all that is black and beautiful. I am Haitian, I am Jamaican, I am Afro-Cuban, I am Kenyan, I am Afro-Puerto Rican, all that is African, from Africa to the rest of the world, their blood also runs through my, our veins. During the slave trade, the racist slave traders intentionally tried to destroy the African family, which they believed would facilitate the psychological breaking process. The slave traders sold family members to different genocidal slave plantations. For example, for example, a mother went to Haiti, her husband to Cuba, her mother to America, three Ks, her sister to Brazil, her daughter to the Dominican Republic, and her son to Jamaica. We, as a people, are descendants of this attempt to execute this global African genocide, and I refuse to contribute to that genocide by denying my global African family. As a new African, I am also Haitian, and I am compelled by this innate affinity to stand up for the rights of our people in Haiti. I realize that we as a people in this country are faced with our own crises, from the violent deaths of our young people due to gang and drug-related violence and HIV-AIDS. Our communities are just as unstable as many of the African-run countries. Though we can all concede that these unstable conditions have been orchestrated by the forces of white, white global supremacy, we can't blame racism for our own failure to act in our own best interest. I am not neglecting the problems that we faced here in this country. Being a part of an imprisoned think tank, the New African Prisoners Writers Union, we are equally committed to resolving many of the problems we face as a people. We have developed a number of proposals designed to address many of the problems we face daily, like gang violence, criminal behavior, and the protection of our young women in particular. But the key to our success is coming together as a people and not depending on the government or working with the cops. They don't give a damn about us or our children. We must take the initiative to do for ourselves, and this includes helping our global African community. The world became spectators as genocide scourged the sacred black land of Rwanda. In contrast, when genocide was visited upon the former European nation of Yugoslavia, European nations around the world, America in particular, mobilized their efforts to stop and prevent the genocide of other white people, but they allowed genocide in African countries to go undeterred. Here we are again, being spectators, as genocide ravages our people in Congo, in Darfur, in Haiti. Yes, Haiti. 
What's going on in Haiti is often associated with countries in Africa, but right here in the Western Hemisphere, a new form of genocide is taking place. Our people in Haiti are faced with conditions that are equal in results to those that exist in Darfur and other places in Africa. But yet very few people or governments are responding except to mandate an occupation by United Nations troops, whose main goal is to suppress the Lavalas movement of President Aristide in the name of, quote, maintaining order. My beloved people, it is obvious that we as a people can no longer depend on others to value black lives. It is quite clear that black lives do not hold the same human value as white lives in the eyes of European people, which includes white America. So it is incumbent upon us to move on behalf of protecting, preserving, and valuing black lives, both here and globally. This task will require direct participation on all our parts, including those of us behind enemy lines. I am particularly appealing to the black church, and in my opinion, the black church can play one of the most effective roles in intervening in the U.S. government, orchestrated genocide in Haiti. The black church already possesses the internal infrastructure and capacity to mobilize a grassroots campaign designed to end the genocide in Haiti, restore the democratically elected government of Aristide, and remove the U.S. puppet regime who had gained power via an illegal and unjust coup. Many have suggested that the black church is no longer relevant, and an appeal to them would be an act of futility. It is inconceivable to think that the black church would ignore the plight of our people in Haiti, I refuse to believe this. The suffering and pain of our people in Haiti have only been exacerbated tenfold due to the multiple and rapid rapid back-to-back hurricanes that have hit Haiti. Many people, including children, have died as a direct result of these hurricanes. I, as a new African freedom fighter, don't expect the forces of global white supremacy to come to to the aid of our people in Haiti, no different than the tragedy of Hurricane Katrina. We as activists knew that our communities were not prepared for a natural disaster. We are now three years removed from Hurricane Katrina and not one of our communities is prepared for a natural disaster. As soon as another disaster hits, we will be blaming racism again. But I ask, what is stopping us from acting in our own best interest? When I see the tragedy in Haiti, it is symbolic of our own failure as well. White supremacy nationally or globally is no stronger than the global black diaspora, but our strength depends on our ability to come together and act in our own best interests. We have the means and resources at our disposal to improve our living conditions and communities, but our people in Haiti don't have the means, resources, or infrastructure to resist global white supremacy and their orchestrated genocide. This is why it is imperative for the global black diaspora to respond to their needs and call for help. We are in a position to serve as advocates on their behalf. We are in the center of the imperialist monster that is contributing to this genocidal process. We can apply the necessary pressure on this government and their stepchild, the United Nations, to compel them to act in the best interests of our people in Haiti. Though I don't recognize the legitimacy of this fascist government, I believe we have no choice but to attempt to reach them with the hope that they will intervene and end their support for a non-democratic government and demand the immediate release of Alavala's political prisoners, POWs, and activists. We as new African prisoners can help to raise awareness using the various media to inform ourselves and educate our communities about the genocidal crisis that has engulfed our beloved Haiti. The more we learn, discuss, and write about the crisis in Haiti, the more people will be aware of it. 
I encourage you to go to the Haiti Action Committee at HaitiSolidarity.net. Go to California Prison Focus at www.prisons.org. Go to the San Francisco Bayview website at sfbayview.com. Make donations. Give your time wherever you can. Peace to all of you. Um, All power to the people. Get ready for Work Week with Steve Seltzer.